0: Hello adult children, inner children, writers who worry about what your family will think of your work and writers who wish your family would care about your work and everyone in between. And Grant, guess what? This is the last episode of our fifth year of Right-Minded, but I want to say to our listeners, don't worry, it's not our last episode ever.
1: (laughs) No, definitely not. We're going to be back. And I just can't believe it's been five years. Five years is essentially an entire era because we started this (laughs) podcast in a different world than we are in now.
0: Oh my gosh, we sure did.
1: I'm hearing big cymbal crashes somewhere down the street. So there's a parade coming by to celebrate.
0: Awesome. I love that. Uh, And while we do have a different kind of show today because our guest is my mom. Uh, and this came about, Grant, because you and I have gotten into this a few times over the years just about the level of interest or non interest our parents have in our work. Uh, so that was our jumping off point. And I know you've said that your family, and by that I think I mean uh, you've said your parents, um, you know, have not largely been readers of your writing uh, and maybe have not totally gotten your career path in general, but I'd love for you to share more about that. Like, what has that experience been? uh, And do you think your mom will be listening to this week's episode?
1: (laughs) She won't be. Uh, She's very, uh, very much a Luddite, you know, not, not, not on technology of any sort at this point, especially she's 90. But it's an interesting thing about parental support and having them kind of hear us and, and read us on the page. And, you know, even at my, um, increasing age, you know, we still quest for that, uh, parental affirmation, I think, or that parental understanding. And on one side, you know, my mom, uh, especially, but both my parents were tremendous supporters. Like I feel so blessed that they never questioned that I was going to be a writer, you know, and I think that would have been so such an obstacle to go through, to have disapproval. Um, and my mom, you know, always was like, you know, buying me desks and, and writing supplies <laughs> and stuff like that. Like, so I just felt this kind of fundamental support. But at the same time, you know, like the stuff that I write, the stuff that I'm interested in, it's not the kind of stuff that they would read or take, I think, much joy in. And I, I you know, I know they read some, but they didn't read a lot and there was always this question my mom asked you know when i'd tell her that i was going to whatever have a bookstore event or something like that or do do something like even this podcast she'd be like her first question was always will they pay you will you earn money from it and and that just annoyed me so much because it was her first question because i you know i felt like that was the filter she was judging everything through instead of the the act of writing and the act of being creative and the act of like you know just you know everything we talk about on this show so anyway i've always felt this you know um mixed feelings about her support or her involvement, but you know you can't wish somebody to be your reader or your fan necessarily. You know, and and plenty of friends have played that role too. And I've just kind of left that behind and not concerned myself with it. But Brooke, you're you're interviewing your mom today, <laughs> and you and you've told me that your parents have had very different levels of interest in your writing or and or, or your work. So I'd like to hear more.
0: Yeah, I mean, I relate to what you're saying in the sense that both my parents were supportive. Um, Certainly, you know, my mom and I get into this in the interview a little bit. um, But it's just in other ways, it was very polar opposite experiences, because in terms of reading and actually being invested in what I was doing. So like my mom reads everything I post and has read all my books. You know, if I share something, she'll read it. And I know she'll read it. My dad, on the other hand, you know, who obviously recently passed away, he didn't read my stuff, you know, and I I do believe he was proud of me, but not Seemingly curious about my work. And so him not reading my writing, you know, on, on the one hand, I felt like it didn't bother me that much, but I'm not sure if it's cause I got used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I remember being actually quite hurt when he didn't watch my TEDx talk
1: yeah.
0: and he didn't, I don't think he ever watched it. And for me, I was like, it's a big deal to me and it's seventeen minutes <laughs> you know I think you can get through it uh and still I never asked him about it you know and i I think it's because I wanted him to just tell me he had watched it you know and he didn't uh, and so I can only speculate that it was something avoidant in him you know and I just didn't totally realize why or what that was about, because I don't think it actually stemmed from lack of support. But some people really do have explicit lack of support from their parents, of course. Um, and sometimes we don't make sense of things or don't know how to make sense of things with our parents' reactions or larger family member you know, circles, for that matter. And it can feel confusing or bewildering. Um, so, you know, that my mom is so supportive and unwaveringly so it is a contrast that's good but that's also fraught you know in the sense that um, there's not a possibility that she won't read my stuff you know and I think about that when I'm writing my memoir and that was part of the reason that I wanted to bring her onto the show today to have that kind of conversation because I think it's one that a lot of writers face
1: yeah I like how you phrase that the the tension of your father not having the curiosity you know. Because what we do, you know, we're making ourselves so vulnerable on the page, you know, we are kind of giving ourselves to another. So it's, it's right, I think, to kind of expect and hope that somebody will have that curiosity to find out more. Uh, but if it's any, any consolation, I recently sent a two minute, uh, trailer for a domestic of course that I filmed to my family. And I don't think any of them have watched, it <laughs> <laughs> I can't even get two minutes of time, but yeah, but you know, I think I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about what you said about your mom and the fact that she will read everything, which is a kind of, man, I don't know now, now I'm feeling a little bit grateful <laughs> that my mom doesn't read everything because that actually does give me a certain freedom on the page. And freedom with my subject matter and my words and my sense of who is who, a readership which definitely informs what you write so um let's go further into your relationship with your mom and writing and tell tell me more about why you decided to interview her for this show
0: yeah well i mean thank you for being open to it you know i think i i proposed it to you and that really stemmed from two places in my thought process um first losing my dad, right? I mean, I think when you think about a parent's death and what that means, so many of the writers that I've worked with over the years have either had to wait until their parents die to write the book that they want to write, or they've told me that they they need to wait until their parents die. Um, you know, I didn't have that sense with my dad at all, because as I mentioned, he, I don't think he was going to read my work anyway. Uh, but death is this weird Rite of passage, you know, for a child losing a parent, devastating as it might be, and it opens up new possibilities and avenues of just thinking about things. There, there is a freedom for people, and I recognize that's true. And I've just been swirling all these thoughts around about being an adult child and how loss impacts us, and then what it meant to lose my dad in the middle of writing my memoir, and what it means, good and bad, that. He'll never read it, you know. I mean, I say he wouldn't have read it anyway, but maybe he would have, right? Um, and then I started listening to Wiser Than Me, which other people may have listened to. It's Julia Louis Dreyfus's podcast, and at the end of the show, she chats with her mom. Just these short little things about her excitements or impressions about her own show. And it's very charming. She is so charming. And I love that podcast. And I got to thinking that I should bring my mom on the show because she's very wise and she's a poet and a teacher and she's written a book. And losing my dad just made me realize that I wanted to share my mom with the world a little more widely. So uh, I also thank you, Grant, for being open to it.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think it's a brilliant idea. And I've uh, been very uh, riveted by Julie Louise Dreyfus's podcast, Wiser Than Me. So I recommend it and totally relate that, you know, when you lose a parent, um, your whole perception of the world changes, uh, pretty dramatically. And, and with my dad, when he died, he hadn't written down his stories. I know that there was a lot to ask him that we never heard and it's, it's gone forever. Right. And so, um, you know, with my mom, I made a promise that that wouldn't happen i even bought this little book in target one day questions to ask your mother you know and there's like a 100 or 200 questions in there they're really good questions actually but i haven't sat down with her to ask her those questions and record her her stories which is really important you know and um i think this you know th- this question of family comes up so much for memoirs especially of course and I, I think the often the biggest concern for adult children is what their parents will think or what the fallout will be and but of course there are any number you know people to consider in a family unit it siblings, exes, grandparents, children, extended family. I certainly think of that with my own children and my brother and sister. So we've done a bunch of shows or at least a few shows that have touched upon these impacts. I remember Stephanie Fu spoke to this when we interviewed her last year. And then I recall that you asked uh, Gina Francello about it in your interview. That was a co-production with Women Lit. And Claire Detterer also spoke to this in a, in a long ago interview. And it's it's just something that comes up again and again and again. It sure does
0: uh family reactions and fallouts is probably one of the primary reasons that people stop writing their memoirs or hold off on writing their memoirs so that's that's hard for me uh, it's not so much. Fear as this sense that I'm going to expose myself. Maybe that is still fear. Uh, it's a truism, you know, that it's easier to expose yourself to total strangers than it is to the most intimate members of your family. And I, I'm guessing that makes sense because you don't really care all that much what strangers think of you, comparatively, at least, right? So, mm-hmm. Grant, has there been writing you've done around which you felt worried about this specific topic, the fallout? You know, whether your nuclear or extended family.
1: Yeah, and I think also just what those strangers do think. The the one thing I – especially when I first became a writer, having people read – autobiographic read stories and 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 kind of like with that idea of I'm going to find out more about Grant the person mm-hmm. you know or or view that the the protagonist or or main character was me or you know it's just amazing what people can read into stories that are false you know and I'm writing fiction and I'm writing fiction for a reason and it's it's made up but you you know you make yourself vulnerable no matter what you write and people are going to project things upon you and I it's just something you have to to learn to accept, but you know, every, everything you write and who reads it, it's always going to be fraught depending on that. So it's, it's, it's easier said than done to just say you 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 should get used to it and not worry about the fallout because it's very real. But the other thing is, is I think is, is just, um, learning how to be vulnerable on the page, you know, that's, that's a lifelong lesson unto itself. And it's, it's just one, I think you can't constantly practice enough. Um, So I want to, I want to hear more Brooke about the nature of you talking to your mom on the show (laughs) and being vulnerable. Are you both being vulnerable?
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. I think I'm going to leave it up to the interview to disclose that to you and to our listeners. Um, I am eager to share insights about this topic just and and bringing my mom on I, I was happy with how the interview went you know I'm really grateful for this exchange with her it's not the first time we've talked about my writing by any means you know nor is it the first conversation in which she's given me permission to write this memoir uh, but I think her saying to me that she's going to be okay that idea that she will be okay uh, was probably the most impactful moment of the interview and I didn't Know that she would say that to me going in, so I guess I don't. I didn't realize how much of my own fears and anxieties really have to do with whether she's going to be okay if I tell my truth. Uh, so I, I hope that the rest of this conversation will be helpful to our listeners, uh, who might be on their own journeys with this. You know, I certainly talked about the idea that our parents especially can continue to be with us and do continue to be with us from beyond the grave. So it's not something that's irrelevant to people who've already gone through loss. And it's not irrelevant to people with other parts of their family, like you said, extended family, siblings, kids. Um, so I'm, I'm happy that we're tackling this topic. And without further ado, but also after this short break, we'll bring you my mom, Gail Warner Welcome back, everyone. Today, I have the very distinct and unique privilege of introducing my mom, Gail Warner, as the guest on Right Minded. And I am doing this interview on my own, partly because Grant and I agreed that my mom and I have a deeply established rapport, and that the questions she and I might explore together would probably go to the heart of things a little bit more quickly if it was just the two of us. So hi, mom. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Well, I am happy to have you, and I'm excited about the conversation we're going to have. And before we get into it, I'm going to read your bio so that our listeners can know a bit more about you and your credentials, aside from just being my mom. Gail Warner, M.A., M.F.T., is the author of Weaving Myself Awake, Voicing the Sacred Through Poetry, a collection of poems that she began writing to express her journey into her own strength, the feminine, and the sacred. In 1994, she founded a retreat center named Pine Manor, where for nearly 30 years, she facilitated countless groups and collaborated with many teachers and healers to provide deeply reflective and healing offerings. In addition to developing Pine Manor, she's been a psychotherapist for more than 30 years. Her own journey as a writer, a mother and grandmother, and a woman in the world is defined and shaped by the opportunities that unfold through both loss and surrender. So... Thanks for being with me, mom.
2: Yeah, thank you. So I've actually been a therapist for more than 45 years. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Just so <Yeah>. you know.
0: <laughs> right, right on the heels of how old I am, basically. <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs> I was licensed to write when you were a babe in my arms.
0: Well, today's episode uh, is a little bit of a departure from what Grant and I normally do, not just because it's just me, but also because we're going to have a little bit more of a free flow conversation, and usually Grant and I alternate questions. And so before we start, I wanted to let listeners know that you and I talk a lot about a lot of stuff, a lot of deep things, lots of of which is focused on interpersonal dynamics, and we're really close, uh, but we also have typical mother-daughter stuff, and I think that stems from long-held patterns as it would with any mother-daughter duo. Uh, And so I know that I suffer from anticipating what you're going to think or how I think you're going to react to things. And I thought we would launch in right there. Um, Because when it comes to my personal writing and creative expression, I I sometimes have anxiety (laughs) specific to that and specific to my memoir that uh, listeners know I'm currently working on. And I I also think a lot of writers can relate to that. So I'm sure you're not surprised to hear me say that, Mom. But what do you make of how kids project these things onto their parents and vice versa?
2: Well, I think uh, it is very common. I mean, obviously, it happens all the time. We have our own uh, internalized pictures. Uh, I kind of think of it as you have a collage of me. I have a collage of you and a collage that has moving parts. Some parts can be kind of fixed and pasted down and some parts can change and show up one day and not be there another day. And so, it well, I'd have to say it doesn't surprise me. And again, it does surprise me. And part of that is because my picture of you is as filled with passion and confidence and out there in the world. And so I don't tend to have the scared, anxious kid in, you know, on the front of my collage when I see you. I mean, not my scared, anxious kid, your scared, anxious kid. Right. I don't tend to, once in a while I see it, but it really isn't my main way of seeing you.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because I think what I project also is some of the fixed stuff is is also fixed from old places, right? And And you've changed a lot. And I think that's another thing is like sometimes parents don't give their kids' room to be different or to grow and vice versa, right? Absolutely. Kids can kind of think that their parents are the same as they used to be. And I think historically, you know, I've felt that you've been reactive to, you know, some of the feminism of, you know, my time at Seal Press. And I remember specifically when I wrote Right on Sisters that there was a strong reaction that you had to this idea of writing like a motherfucker. We don't usually cuss on the show, but we have to today because it's part of the story. <laughs> um, and, and that's something from Cheryl Strayed um, that she wrote about and then I wrote about it in my book. And now almost five years has passed. So I think we could unpack that a bit here, but you were quite emotional about that section. And uh, and I, I remember being kind of critical and dismissive. I'm sorry for that in retrospect, but I was frustrated that you weren't seeing where I was coming from because I saw it as very empowering and you were upset. And so that's just an example. I think that now when I work on my new project, it kind of can resurface, even though that's a five-year-old emotion that's inside of me, you know?
2: Right, right. Yes. Well, for sure, uh, I have changed during that time a lot. Um, And it is true that I had a very um, limited way of seeing certain things that, thank goodness, I have expanded. (laughs) And that in my journey, I didn't respond well to feminism. I was a child of the 60s and 50s, 60s, I guess I would say. And I remember uh, coming back from Japan. I lived in Japan for two years in college. I came back in 1968. And from the time I left to the time I came back, some revolution had happened in our country. (laughs) And it was like, oh, my goodness. When I saw it with my eyes literally coming from the outside, it just blew my mind. And it was the freedom, the expression, the breaking through, you know, free love, but uh, feminism, you you name it. And uh, of course, there was feminism before that, but I'm not sure I really knew that (laughs) or I paid much attention to it. So it is fascinating how these things shift and the way we're conditioned and hopefully that we can look at our conditioning and and, uh, let go of some of it.
0: Well, again, it's interesting because I worked at Seal Press for all those years. And I was 28, I guess, when I took that position. And I had grown up in a family where dad was a pastor when I was growing up and you both were quite religious. We went to church Um, and, and that's shifted. I mean, we're in a very different place. You're not so religiously inclined these days, but I think it's an important conversation. And you and I were talking about it a bit because I, I do think that religion and not just Christianity, obviously, you know, we could be talking about Judaism or, you know, the Muslim faith or anything that when kids in particular are writing their stories and they're sort of breaking out of what is maybe deemed to be okay within the confines of that religion it feels really scary and and I'm a bit disconnected from that i think cuz my journey has been sort of long without it but it's still in me you know and i find mm-hmm. that interesting right like that some of the stuff that i'm writing about in my memoir for instance about falling in love about my sexual journey you know that that pushes up against some of my concerns. I think when I think of anxiety, it's probably mostly around those interpersonal things that I might share. And then I'm like, Oh, my God, my mom is going to read this. Um, (laughs) So I I think that's a lot of where it stems from, you know, whether it's like sex, identity, religion, uh, and I'm sure you can relate to that. But I'm curious what you have to say about it.
2: Yeah. Uh, It's funny, because when I think about my own mom, it's like, Oh my gosh, would I have had that feeling with my own mom? Absolutely. Um, maybe in spades, maybe more, you know, (laughs) probably um, more (laughs) because my mom was much more repressed and, uh, limited than I've been, you know? So it's again, funny, the picture we have of ourselves. you know, and, but I, I totally get it. And I, I would hope that, uh, That that picture that haunts you in a sense can be right size that you can kind of comfort the child in you and and, uh, reduce the size of that critical or disapproving parent.
0: Well, talking with you about it has been one of the best ways through it, you know, and I know not everyone has that luxury and some people's parents are haunting them from beyond the grave. You know, I mean, well, these things weigh inside of us, you know, they're sort of part of us. Um, I did want to ask you, though, because you just said that about like if your mom had read your book and you had your own projections and fears about your book because you were writing about goddesses. (laughs) I I remember how worried you were about how people would receive your book. And it seemed that you were less worried about how me and Brent uh, and listeners, that's my younger brother, Brent, uh, were worried. It didn't seem that we factored in too much, but I wanted to ask you about that. Like, as you were writing these poems, did you ever think like, oh my gosh, my kids are going to read this? Or were you more worried about, you know, what certain communities that you had been a part of would think of your work?
2: yeah i i i don't think I had as much concern about what you and Brent would think I think it was because it's more recent uh, maybe I would have had that at a at a you know when you were younger i don't i don't know but I really don't recall that i mean there's always things it's pretty some of the expression is pretty raw and intimate, and therefore I think there's a little anxiety about that period. But my main anxiety came really in three, well, two places, really. One was with friends of mine that are would be more conservative Christians, because then definitely the things I'm writing about are outside of the box and, and actually not Christian, you know, and so there was that piece. And then... Uh, The other interesting one for me in my conditioning, because you talk about being religious, that's one conditioning. The other conditioning is being a therapist. Therapists are highly conditioned by belief systems. And so I have my own uh, layers of belief systems that are about schools of therapy, perspectives on therapy. And again, When I became a therapist, it was at a time that was a pushback to the 60s and 70s with all the stuff I was just talking about that I came back to when I came from Tokyo, which is the free love and all that. So therapists were hanging out in hot tubs with their clients and doing whatever. And and it's like when I was becoming a therapist, it's like boundary, 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 (laughs) boundary. (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so my conditioning was filled with rules in one way yeah and that's another whole interesting piece you know
0: absolutely yeah and you know some of these questions obviously i'm kind of trying to dig for the more universal so i i do want to ask this question about uh you know, so many memoirists that I've worked with over the years have either said to me that they waited until their parents died to write their memoirs or that they needed to wait, you know, which is such an awful and and sort of sad way to be thinking about going about your memoir, you know, and yet I, I realize it because they just feel like, or not realize it. I mean, I have compassion for it because I think that some people just feel that the consequences would be unbearable. And I'm just curious what you make of all of that and what you would say to someone who said they needed to wait until their parents were dead or, or what would you say to me if I said, I don't think I could write my memoir because I would be too afraid of how you would react.
2: Well, I think in terms of responding to you, I would say I'll be okay. (laughs) Uh, I think in terms of other people, I don't know that everybody would be okay.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And so i have you know looked at my own journey and been self-reflective most of my life some people have never been self-reflective and so back to the collage it's like some people really are caught in their own collage of themselves and it's limited uh and they there is emotional responses uh they can be very hurt and parents can be very hurt by their children i mean because it's a place of real love uh and concern and and it's part of the parents job to in a way create boundaries or make the world a safe place or so it's a tricky thing i so i i'm sure this is what you do i would hear it out and if it's if it seems like the person is caught in their own picture and that you, from their sharing you sense that there might really be room uh for the parent to understand of course that's a hard thing to know then you can encourage them to get beyond their own picture but sometimes it is a fixed picture in the other person and then it also depends on the relationship i mean um there's just so many factors it's very uh, really a hard thing to answer
0: I think it's right because, um, you know, it's it's incredibly exposing. Sometimes people talk about, like, airing the dirty laundry. Sometimes people are really writing from a place of vendetta or gotcha. Exactly. And then they need to get past that. You know, I mean, there's so much personal responsibility in memoir. And one of the things that I'm trying to do, especially since I'm writing about my relationship with my ex, you know, is is to do right by her, right? Like, not to have a moment that feels like resentful or angry over things that happen but to take that kind of personal responsibility and and it, that's why it's just so crucially important for people to have some some distance or at the bare minimum um that's that self-reflective aspect that you're talking about Yes. Well, uh recently you had a 78th birthday party. Uh Our whole family was there and Brent got up. Well, we both did. We both told stories. But one of the things that you and I laughed about is that Brent specifically shared a story that you had a real sailor's mouth and that you cussed all the time when we were growing up, which made me both laugh and kind of real in shock because, of course, like that was not true at all. <laughs> in my recollection, you did not cuss. And so much so that one time I think I said shit when I was a kid, and I like thought that I was going to be in huge trouble. And I was devastated just by saying the word. And so I wanted to ask you because it was funny for us, you and me. But when we recall things, and when we write, our memories betray us, you know, and there are just as many versions of events as there are people who experience them. And I was curious your whole take on memory varying so wildly from person to person and, you know, how it feels to be misrepresented, even if it's a sweet story, you know I mean? Even if it's not hurtful per se.
2: Well, I certainly have had times when I feel misrepresented uh, and sometimes it's painful. But in that case at my party, I did, it, it wasn't a hard hit. It was a more of a, just a tiny tweak, like what? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I thought about it later, and I thought, "How could that be?" And I and I can kind of understand because I was thinking of one particular experience, and this is what can happen. I mean, a child can absorb a particular experience that becomes, again, fixed on the collage, and then it becomes the lens. And I was thinking about when my dad was, who was a stroke victim, I brought him home to our house. I was a single mom at the time and I'm guessing Brent was a 5 so you would have been 8 I'm thinking that that's probably about the age and I remember I w- it was very hard I was scared managing my dad because he was very disabled and I had a hard time lifting him you know so to transfer him you know from one place to another and so, so I remember being in the bathroom and I remember being scared and I it had something to do with transferring uh, my dad and I and I just screamed damn it <laughs> mm. and and I remember Brent was crying later because he could feel my emotion and then he said you said damn it to me <laughs> and so I mean that's just an example I mean I'm not sure I have no idea that that might be just uh one little thing, but I think the, again, it's the power of the parent. Uh, And it's not like uh, the other thing is that I was also in a time. And even though I agree with you, I didn't go around swearing all the time. I also was working in my own therapy at the time and I was learning to deal with my anger. And so I actually was, more expressive my, of my anger, kind of letting it through more than I had before that, where my anger had been very tapped down. So whether I swore or not, he could have felt my anger and that might not have been, he might not have been used to that or comfortable with that. Who knows? But um, it is fascinating to, to think about.
0: Yeah. Well, it is just interesting, this whole idea that siblings will have such different experiences of their own upbringing yes i i wanted to ask you i mean grant and i talked about this a little bit in the pre-conversation about parents different levels of investment in their work and we've laughed together because grant's parents historically have just not read his work at all and that's been my experience of dad i mean dad recently passed away i've i've talked about that on the podcast but um You know, I just kind of always felt like he never even knew what I was doing creatively. Um, And it just wasn't really on his radar, which sometimes was hurtful. And sometimes was a relief. (laughs) You, by contrast, have been very invested in my work, right? So I know you're going to read what I write, even on Facebook. And when I did my TEDx talk, you live streamed it the day of, (laughs) you know, I know you don't listen to every episode of the podcast, but I know you listen. And so that's very different. You know, I mean, that's a kind of thing where it's like uh, both an anticipation that what I write is going to be consumed by you. And also, if you didn't do it, I think I would feel some sadness, you know, so there's all these multi layered things going on. And it's interesting that I have both of these experiences. So I, I just wanted to ask you about that, like, um this jumbled mess, <laughs> of contradictory <laughs> emotions, I guess that all of us have around yeah. how we're received by people we care about.
2: Yeah, well, I think that is the you hit it on the uh, the nail on the head. Uh, It's it's people we care about. It's the you know the more that we care, the more it tweaks us in some way. And you use the word investment, and and I and I laugh at that because when I think of the word investment, I kind of think of invasive, and it's. That it's my that I'm, you know, it's about me and my experience is really, and I and I've also thought about this since we've talked about it. Um, that my whole life has been about learning to express myself. You have lived your life expressing yourself. Some ways you've expressed yourself in ways that, you know, generationally, like I was saying, I'm more, was I'm like compared to my mom. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But then I sort of see you compared to me. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. And so I actually mostly delight in the expression, um, because, because Because I love expression, (laughs) you know, and so mostly like your TED talk, it's like, oh, wow. And also like, I don't know that I could ever do that. I've always been, I have done some public speaking, but when I, particularly when I was a little bit younger, maybe fifties or early sixties, I was frightened of public speaking or nervous about it. And I, I think that's changing some now, but it's just interesting that, um, the investment for me, I've never wanted to be invasive, but I think I've always been afraid that I'll be invasive with everybody, not just with you. And then sometimes people say to me, are you kidding me? (laughs) You're the least invasive, but that's my fear. My fear is I'll be invasive.
0: Right. And so sometimes when your fear is something, then you're hyper correcting it yeah, to a certain degree, because I, yeah, I, I agree. I, I am your daughter, and I don't think you're invasive. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to go back to weaving myself awake and sort of circle on this topic that you've been talking about. You know, like, what would it have been like if. Your parents, my grandparents, who I called Papa and Buff, had read Weaving Myself Awake, but I, so I do want to ask that because you you've sort of been like, oh my gosh, but you know what might that have really been like? And I'm curious too about your dad, who I think was a little more, I don't know, maybe would have been more receptive. Or um, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that. And then also just what brought you to poetry in the first place? Because you wrote this book in your seventies, wrote and published it in your seventies. And, um, and and you really just took to poetry and all of a sudden we're writing all of these poems and, um, and it's a beautiful book of poems. And I, I love so many of them and I've turned back to them and we're going to get to hear a couple of your poems before we end today. But if you could talk about those two things.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, I think that my parents would have had some difficulty with public exposure. That That's always been something I, that's a part of me that I'm sure you have felt. It's like I have always been big on differentiating between public and private and so if somebody want going back to motherfucker you know in <laughs> therapy sessions i've certainly had people screaming fuck 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 whatever and it doesn't phase me so it's not like but Public is a little different thing. Uh, I mean, when I say public, I don't mean public in a group or something. I mean, public out on the Internet, out in a book, out into the world. So this public-private thing has been a thing for me and still to some degree is. My father was by far the more public person and my mom far the more private person but I think they probably would have been similar to me in the public versus private. My father was Catholic, but my mother wouldn't marry him unless he agreed not to raise us Catholic. And so he was a a, sort of a hidden Catholic, but he had a devoted heart really in terms of his faith. I would say my mom was on the other hand, afraid of, and, Pushing away from religion, so here I turn out to be a born again evangelical Christian by the time I'm in high school. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine what that does for them. Uh, so they were, they both had concerns about that, but very from, from very different lenses. And uh, and my, I would say my dad was the one who, using your word, was invested in terms of his expression. My dad was the more expressive. And so he expressed himself around whatever I did or was involved in. My mom, not so much. She didn't express herself much. And so it's a very different experience. Um, But it's just the opposite of yours in terms of it was my dad who was the engaged, involved, and and opinionated. I, again, don't tend to see, I'm sure I'm very opinionated, but it's not my picture of myself. And I think it's both. I think I can be very mute on my opinions and I think I can be opinionated.
0: Well, maybe therein lies the complications is that people are are different things and show up different ways and, exactly. you know, you can kind of be one way and be another way. But I did want to come back to this question of coming to poetry later in life and yeah. and, and just the openness to receiving these poems and putting them on the page and then deciding that you wanted to collect them into a, a book project.
2: Yeah, so for me, it was a beautiful experience that I I wanted to be able to have a language for my, for what was sacred to me, because the language I was housed in as particularly as an, I am not anti-Christian at all, but I also have morphed into ways that have language beyond that belief system. But what I found myself feeling was that other people can express their faith and their belief, and I'm not finding the language that feels like it's my language and that was my journey to how do I voice what is sacred to me and I actually did some coaching at that time uh and so I had a wonderful person who was my sacred listener who basically listened and encouraged me. And so I had a witness to be able to verbalize in in ways the things that were for me at that point unexpressed. And that, again, has to do with the feminine, because for me, I had rejected in a way my own feminine. I say that again in other ways. I never, I mean... In certain aspects of the feminine, I always embodied it. As a mother, for instance, I think for me, as the pictures, uh, uh, the things that get pasted on you, what it is you're supposed to be, that's what I rejected in terms of um, this or that expectation. The poetry for me, you know how people talk about how they struggle with their writing. It just poured out of me because it was so it was my heartfelt expression and I, and and a lot of it I was expressing one on one to another person, or maybe I was writing about it, but then expressing it, or I shared it with my friends so it was a it was it was profound for me and still is uh, still is I still have that stream of touching into something that for me is very intimate and deep and and sacred in the sense of valuable precious
0: well and that might be a good segue into the two poems that you're bringing uh, that I want you to read uh, because you shared after we talked about that we would do this episode you shared these with me and they just seem so perfect because they're sort of back-to-back poems about how we get projected onto and how we project onto others so I'd love to have you read those and if there's anything else you want to say about them
2: Yeah, thank you. Well, I wrote these poems right after my book was published, and I wrote them in response to some of the things that I was projecting onto a particular friend of mine. And then I came back around a little bit later and realized that I also felt projected on, and I was trying to express both of those things. So the first one is about my projections, And it's my attempt to own my own projection. And this could be any place I'm painting my projection. And it's called Dear Painted One. Help me see what I paint onto you. I paint my irritation on you. I paint my mistrust on you. I paint my fear on you. I paint my disappointment on you. I paint my distance on you. All of these paints stored in bottles of unacknowledged hurt, brushed off fear, numbed out grief, rejected anger. If I can see how I paint onto you, perhaps I will be kind enough to forgive myself and who I have painted you to be. Perhaps I will be brave enough to see my projections and recognize with humility how I can unwittingly violate the dignity of those I love. And the other one is later, it wasn't at the same time. I got to thinking, well, yes, that expresses my, I'm taking ownership. I'm looking at how I project. But what about when I'm really hurt because I'm really feeling like somebody is putting something on me that is not fair, that is not my truth? That's a very different thing, and that can be very upsetting to to be the recipient of someone else's projection And sometimes somebody else's projection is pure paint. It's like there's only a speck of it that's matching who you really are. (laughs) And so this is called the messy art of your own transformation. Can you see that you paint your irritation on me? You paint your mistrust on me. You paint your fear on me. You paint your disappointment on me. You paint your distance on me. All of these paints stored in bottles of unacknowledged hurt, accumulated fear, numbed out grief, rejected anger. If you can see how you paint onto me, perhaps you'll be kind enough to forgive yourself and who you have painted me to be. Perhaps you'll be brave enough to see your projections and recognize with humility how you can unwittingly violate the dignity of those you love. Put down the brush, pull the canvas out of storage, paint with your hands the messy art of your own transformation. I love that last image because everything we're talking about can be messy and understanding ourselves and understanding others can be messy. And yet there's an art to messiness, you know, it's like, I mean, messiness can also be an, a wonderful way of moving into artistic expression. And so in that sense, I, I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for the journey we've made, uh, which I think has been a huge journey in the last, you know, 15 years. I don't know what time frame I'd put on it, but a number of years because we've been able to risk these things. So I'm, I appreciate you, uh, of course, love you and adore you. And, but appreciate that you've risked with me. And, uh, I, I I love that, and I and I and I think I have also learned, and I'm learning to risk with you.
0: Well, I want to say that right back to you, Mom. Thank you for doing this today, and for risking with me. And not everybody is going to be so lucky to be able to have such an open conversation with a parent or a sibling or someone else that they're worried about in some capacity. But really, the reason I wanted to do this show with you is just to open up and say, these conversations have been helpful. This is not the first time you and I have talked about my writing. Um, It is the first time we've done so publicly. And it it gives me, it's like, I feel like I can breathe, you know, because it's just saying out loud the things that I'm concerned about and then being received you know again you said not everyone can do that but we hope that we can open up some brave spaces for others
2: yeah and the, i guess the final thing i'd like to share is i remember seeing a film sometime when i was studying to be a therapist and it showed little children like one year so old with parents and you know the it, you know they're 6 to 8 times bigger than the child <laughs> and then it showed pictures of adults with creatures that are six or eight times bigger than they are, hmm. and I, I'll never forget it because I thought, oh my God, it's like a child has this gigantic adult that's carrying all of their own, and just like a, the their own bottled up feelings, their own their own stressors, the ways they've been. Hit and wounded and hurt in life. They're rages, they're this, they're that. And it's amazing that we do as well as we do in some ways. And some people don't do as well. Some people are very traumatized and wounded and struggle with it forever. But again, I want to come back to, I think if we can come back to the innocent part of ourselves when we're tweaked or afraid or, and, and, and be kind to that innocent part of ourselves, and understand that we all are innocent in a inner place inside. That is the child place on my, uh, right up here that, you know, like you said something about, uh, adult child, uh, you know, the theme today is parent adult child dynamics, and so yes i'm i mean there's an i mean I'm the parent and you're the adult child, but we also have an adult and child in each one of us right. <laughs> and it's so interesting to play with that, like where do I land and where where am I speaking from, and how can I step back and look at that?
0: Mom, I'm so grateful that we got to bring your words of wisdom to our listeners. Thank you. Love you.
2: Thank you. I love you, too.
0: thank you everyone for listening to this interview with me and my mom. It's been a great honor to do this with you grant for five years. And I want to thank Jeremy, our producer who's behind the scenes for every single episode and who edits with such brilliance and does all the heavy lifting. So thank you both. Uh, And to all our listeners have a beautiful, relaxing August and please do tune in because we have the episodes, uh, grant with our best ofs. That was kind of fun to choose those.
1: Definitely. You know, it's so great to to go back and revisit past podcasts. So I'm just going to, give a big plug that that our listeners should go back and look through our episodes for for past guests uh, they're just as relevant today as they were when we initially uh, interviewed them even five years ago and uh, i'm looking forward to our our 10th anniversary brooke so <laughs> five more years
0: yeah let's do it happy summer everyone